This morning, I encourage you to open up in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin reading at verse 13 there this morning as we continue our sermon series entitled The Table, The Meals of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It's hard to believe that nine weeks of this summer sermon series has gone by, which means if you do the math, this summer is almost over. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. We'll get to the good news of the gospel in a little bit, but uh, this summer has moved right along, but it's been sweet to spend this time with you in the Gospel of Luke, looking at the meals of Jesus there. It's been just as sweet to spend meals with you and to watch you spending meals with one another and getting to know each other and partying together and getting to know each other's friends during the course of the summer that we can join together in enjoyment and thanksgiving, but also in pointing our community to Jesus. Now, the story that we're going to look at here this morning in Luke chapter 24 is a story that's all about life. It's all about a difficult journey home. It's about the fellowship of a stranger. It's about the truth of the word about suffering. It's about the glory of resurrection. It's got all the stories of life all contained within this little journey that we're going to walk with three people in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. We're going to read that whole passage this morning. Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Follow along with me. That very day, two of them, that is two of the disciples of Jesus, who had recently heard news of a resurrection... That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, talking about news of a resurrection and news of the death of the Savior. And Verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? who does not know the things that have happened there in these days. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and in word before God and all the people, and how all our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. 
He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Heavenly Father, we pray that this miraculous happening that our hearts would burn would take place this morning by the same means. That You would open the Word to us and that we would see the Christ for who He is. That we would not pick and choose. We would not interpret by our own sense of reality, but we would allow Your Word to speak. That we would be convicted. That we would become excited by what we discover to be true about you this morning. Lord, this is our prayer because we need you to grant us faith to hear and believe. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We are going to do what we often do with the Scriptures. We're going to simply walk through the story step by step. We're going to look at uh, most of the verses that are here in, in detail. And uh, we are going to find that this is an incredible story. It's one of my favorite happenings, events recorded in the Scriptures. It's one of my favorite historical realities that Jesus would sidle up next to two people walking along the road, conceal his identity while they're talking about him. And then from that concealed identity that he would make known to them who he is, not by a revelation of his face, but by revelation in the word. I love this story. I love the way that it ends that there didn't our hearts burn within us when he spoke to us on the road. And what was he speaking? He was speaking the truth of the word. Love this story. Let's give it the time that it is due this morning. The first couple of verses are setting the scene. We have two people traveling along a road to a village named Emmaus. These two people that are traveling have recently been in Jerusalem. They've witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus who had declared that He was God made flesh. So He is holy God and He is fully man. And in His Humanity, he was crucified and died a bloody death. More than that, he was rejected by everyone leading up to that death. These disciples are coming home after that horrible weekend. And that morning when they were traveling, they, they heard news that there was news of a resurrection, news of a, Jesus not being in the tomb as He was supposed to be, and news of an angel, and news of an appearing of the Christ. This is the way the stage 
is set so that when we get to verse 15, verse 15 says, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, the theme of this series has been, we've been looking at the meals of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Here's the deal. We're nine meals in, and we've skipped quite a few, okay? Luke is filled with eating and drinking. It's one of the marks of the ministry of Jesus. Why meals? The reason why is because Jesus draws near right in the middle of life. And I'll tell you, there is not one thing in my life that is more consistent than the fact that I'm going to eat, right? There's lots of things that I'm supposed to do every day that I don't do, but the one thing that I do do every day is eat. And so there is a coming of Jesus to enter this thing that we all participate in, and every time, every place, every culture, every person, every household, every family eats. And he draws near. And here we have Jesus drawing near to a couple of people who are also on a very normal activity. They're simply traveling home along the road. Jesus draws near to us in the middle of life, and this is the way it was always supposed to be. Again, an instructive passage of Scripture is Deuteronomy 6. We referenced it a couple weeks ago with the, the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord our God and the Lord is one. But this week it continues in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. It says this, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. When is the religious time of life? When is the spiritual time? When is the time to pay attention to the things of God? Like, I'm trying to think of what isn't covered here. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, that's when, that's when Jesus sidles up next to the people and begins to explain who he is. It's in the course of life. Verse 17. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? It's it's fascinating. Jesus answers a question, or asks a question. And their first answer happens before they even open their mouths. It says, when he asked this question, they stood still looking sad. Friends, they stopped what they were doing. They were about this normal course of life, walking home after a difficult weekend. And the question of Jesus stopped them in their tracks. It says they looked sad. Jesus gives the two disciples an opportunity to explain to him what they thought of who Jesus is. That's so important. In fact, it's the first takeaway I have for you this morning. I think that this text shows us something profound that Jesus does multiple times. It's important to give people the opportunity to explain who they think Jesus is. This isn't the first time Jesus has done this. We have in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus asks his disciples a simple question. Who do the people say that I am? So he's had his disciples listening. His disciples are out among the peoples and they're, they're listening to who Jesus says, who the people say Jesus is. And then he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter, 
In Mark chapter 8, responds, Jesus, you are the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. You've come to rescue the people. Now, as soon as Peter offers that confession, and he's right, he nailed it. Good job. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You are the one who has come to rescue the people. Immediately, Jesus begins to teach four things. Immediately, Jesus begins to teach that he must suffer. That if it's true that he's the Christ, he must be rejected. That he must be killed and that he will rise. This is what it means to be the Christ. This is even before he's done it. Jesus explains that to be the Christ means to suffer, to be rejected, to die, and to rise. It even says in that passage in Mark 8 that Jesus said this plainly. Jesus said lots of things. And quite a few of the things he said in parables. Parables are great teaching tools, but sometimes they're confusing. But this he said plainly, out in the open for the disciples to hear. And then, after the disciples hear what Jesus has to say about who the Christ is, you know what Peter does, who nailed the answer just a second ago? Some of you know what he did. He, he grabs Jesus and says, Jesus, we got to talk. <laughs> you, you are the Christ, but you must not know what that means. Because the Christ isn't going to suffer and die. You can't do that. And Jesus rebukes Peter sternly. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the things of God are that there must be a justice. There must be a payment of the debt, and that death would come through the suffering of the Christ for sins. That's the things of God. The things of God are justice upon sin and vindication in the resurrection. We'll see in just a moment that these disciples on the road to Emmaus are doing exactly the same thing as what Peter was doing. They, they figured Jesus was the Christ, but they had a definition of what that meant that didn't align with the things of God. They had an image in their mind of who Jesus is that didn't fit accurately with the picture that's painted according to the Word. In verse 19, it says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. You know that guy lived down the road from Emmaus there? And he was a prophet. I mean, make no mistake, he wasn't like the other guys from Nazareth. What good can come out of there, right? He was a prophet. And he was mighty indeed. And he was mighty in word. And it was before God and men. Jesus is a pretty big deal. A man, a prophet, condemned to death and crucified. You see, now Jesus isn't really special at all. Why? Lots of people have been crucified. Lots of people have died on crosses. The Romans made sure that this was true. And Jesus is just another in a long line of dead, supposed criminals. And it blasts their hopes and dreams. We see it in verse 21. Verse 21 begins with these words, But we had hoped. We had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. 
We've been uh, allowing a book named A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester to help us through this series. And in that book, Tim Chester says, Christ doesn't begin with a resurrection. That's so important. He doesn't begin with a resurrection pronouncement. He begins with a question. What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? He gives them space to tell their story, to share their pain, to speak their disappointment. And Luke captures the drama of it, and they stood still looking sad. And it's as we ask questions that we discover what people had hoped for. In this case, they hoped that the Messiah would rescue them, probably meaning from Roman occupation and perhaps reestablish the kingdom of David. It's at our meals that we actually get to hear our neighbors and listen, what we call at Crosspoint, listen redemptively. We're listening for the story of what the people in our community and even our own hearts think is the gospel. Think would be rescue. Think what the world would look like if it was great and redeemed. And as we listen there, we discover what people had hoped for and how their dreams are being crushed over and over Again, we discover the ways, the hopes, and the stories of people we are meet are shaping what they expect of who God is. So that when we say the word Christ, when we say the word Jesus, when we say the word gospel, when we speak of these things, we're not necessarily communicating the same any more than Peter and Jesus were talking about the same thing in Mark chapter 8. Or these two disciples and Jesus are talking about the same thing here. What we're seeing is that their stories are being, what they're seeing is that the story of God is being shaped by their stories and what they expect God to be, rather than seeing their stories as being shaped by what is true about God. You see, we know our stories. We know our pain, we know our hopes, but we are not wise. We don't know what we truly need. We don't know what's really wrong. Think of it this way. We're like a patient in a doctor's office. And the good physician, Jesus, he looks at us and he knows that we know we're hurt. But he also knows that we don't know what's wrong. And so the good physician, Jesus, says, tell me about your pain. Where does it hurt? But then Jesus, who is the good physician, knows what's truly wrong. And he opens up the physician's manual, the Word of God, and he begins to explain the cure. We are foolish patients. We walk into the doctor's office, we tell them what we think, where it hurts. We tell them what we hoped for, and then we begin to tell them what's wrong and what to do about it. Verse 22. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find his body. And they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels. There seems to be news of a resurrection floating around. They tell their version of the resurrection story, right? They begin to explain to Jesus, unwittingly, the version of the resurrection story. And it's little more than a story. Don't miss that. It's just a story. I mean, something about some angels. It's a fairy tale. It's wistful thinking of some distraught women. They were interpreting the story of Jesus in light of their own lives, in light of their own experiences, in light of their own hopes that were dashed, rather than interpreting both the story of Jesus and their own lives in light of the Word 
what had the word said would happen when the Messiah would be crucified? Because it speaks of that, but they hadn't paid attention because it didn't fit their preconceived notion of what would fix them. Friends, our, our own thoughts are a deficient means of making sense of our lives. I'm going to say that again because I'm not sure my heart heard it yet. Our own thoughts are a deficient means of making sense of our own lives. And we just sit there and think and spin, and we're just, our, our hearts don't have enough gravity to hold our lives together. We need something higher, we need something wiser. I believe that it's a great cause for the depression that's epidemic in our culture and in our households. We, we find ourselves dejected on the journey because we're using ourselves and our minds and our hearts and our thoughts as their own reference point. And we're trying to spin around there and make sense of our lives. We live our lives and think our thoughts, but we don't understand we certainly don't have any real answers. We have a couple guesses, convictions we call them, that we try to live by. But we don't really know. There's something that we need, and it's an anchor for the soul. If our only anchor is ourselves, we aren't secure, we're adrift. Do you get the picture? If the anchor of our souls is ourselves, we are blown and tossed by the waves of the sea. We need something fixed, something greater than ourselves, something greater than our own thoughts to come in and interpret what is real and anchor us to the soil. This is the second takeaway I believe this text has for us. It's only when the Word of God is opened as a means of understanding our journey. It's only as the story of God, according to His own word about Himself, is opened that we begin to understand the story of our lives. We are so self-centered. Like, moment by moment. And as we are self-centered, we try to make sense of ourselves. But there's no sense to be found there. We have to look outside of ourselves. And when we look at the Word, the Word begins to tell us something that is true about our stories. We find our place in a story that's higher than our story and other than our story and greater than our story. We begin to see ourselves not as the hero, not even as worthy of rescue, but as broken and sinners in this story. We begin to see Jesus not as a knight in shining armor come to rescue the beautiful princess, but rather we discover in the Word that He is the rightful King and judge who suffered in the place of sinners. We don't need to be rescued from some bad oppressor outside of ourselves. Rome right? Occupiers, a messed up culture, society, those bad relationships. That isn't our greatest need for rescue. We need rescued from our own sinful hearts. We need rescued from the justice of God on sinners. We need atonement. We need sacrifice and we need grace. 
Look at the way that Jesus unpacks it for us. Verse 25. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones. I just feel like he's talking to me. How, how silly you are to try and make sense of your story alone by just reading your story. How foolish one. Oh, foolish ones. Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The disciples, they know everything they need to know about Jesus. These disciples right here, these two disciples along a road, they know everything they need to know. They even know about his resurrection. <laughs> they know everything. I mean, these, these are Jewish disciples. They know the word, man. It was in their culture, and they knew it, and they memorized it, and they talked about it. They did what Deuteronomy said. But you know what they didn't do? Their failure isn't a failure to know. Their failure is a failure to believe. They still saw themselves at the center of the story. And seeing themselves at the center of the story, the story didn't make sense, so they had to kick out a couple parts of it. Kent Hughes says this in his commentary. He says, certainly they believed the prophets, but just as certainly they did not believe all that the prophets said. They had read and believed the prophets selectively as they embraced the Messiah ruler passages, ignoring the passages that prophesied suffering. Of course. <laughs> Who wants a king that suffers, right? <laughs> I mean, you might wind up suffering under a suffering king. You might wind up crucified under a crucified king. Once a king like that, so we're going to pick and choose those. When he talks about they failed to believe the prophets, they're speaking about the Old Testament Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures, but they failed to believe them, to understand them in light of what they actually say, to pay attention to the words that are found there. This is what happens when we interpret the Bible according to our own lives, rather than our own lives according to the Bible. The story of our lives said that Israel was a special people. A special people whom God would surely rescue from the bad Romans. That's what the story of their lives said. So they needed a warrior king. But the story of the Scriptures said that Israel and all of mankind are sinners under judgment. So they needed a suffering servant that is someone who is righteous who would suffer death in their place. That's the story of the Word. And they failed to receive it because they were living the dream and their hopes were dashed. Verse 26, Jesus says, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? These are disciples of Jesus. I'm going to give us just a little bit of context we're told that one of these disciples is Cleopas. There are a few Cleopases in, in the Scripture. They're mentioned in the Bible a few different places. We're not absolutely positive of which Cleopas this particular Cleopas is that's on this road to Emmaus talking with Jesus. But the most obvious option, far from a consensus, but a pretty good guess, is the Cleopas that's mentioned in John chapter 19, verse 25. John chapter 19, verse 25 speaks of Mary, the sister, probably the sister-in-law of Jesus' mother, whose name was you know, Mary. It'd be kind of weird if there were two Marys in the same house, right? So this is probably her sister-in-law. And it says that that Mary, who is the sister-in-law of Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
is the wife of Cleopas. So that makes this person, Cleopas, would most likely be the one who is in this passage. She was at the cross. She was watching the crucifixion. So that basically means that we're talking about Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary walking along the road after the death of their nephew on a cross hung like a criminal. Why do I mention this? Not because we're sure of who exactly the identity of these people are, but thinking realistically about this helps us understand the depth of their pain. They had lost a lot. You see, they didn't just see one in whom they'd place their hopes die. As disciples of Jesus themselves, they had suffered much to follow after Him. And now the one whom they had followed after was crucified like a criminal and they're associated with Him. Perhaps even the aunt and uncle of a crucified criminal. Jesus didn't die as a friend of those who were in the power at the time. You can see this is a problem. It might even be that they're not even just walking to Emmaus, they're fleeing you know, to Emmaus. It's not good to be in Jerusalem where Jesus had died. That's what the other disciples did. Now they're just aunt and uncle, friend and follower of an executed criminal and religious enemy of the religious elite. That's all they were. That's all they are. If two things are not true, if it was not necessary for the Christ to suffer, and if it is not true that the Christ is risen. This is why Jesus turns to the Bible. He turns to the Bible to explain, you are not just the aunt and uncle of a crucified criminal. The Word has something to say to you. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, basically what he says is beginning about here in the book and ending about here in the book. He explains to them about who He is, about who the Christ is, and that the Christ must suffer. You know what that tells me? That tells me the whole Bible's about Jesus. What are you reading it for? When you open up the Bible in the morning, do you say, God, just give me a word to help me with that boss? <laughs> God, just show me something today to give me a little bit of pep talk, a little bit of encouragement. Help me out with my kids. They're messed up. Something tells me it's because of me. God, it's true. We'll find help in all of those places, but that's not first and foremost what the Scriptures are about. The Scriptures are about Jesus. When you open up the Word, you should have two questions in your mind. God, who are you and what have you done? Our first question is not, what should I do? Who are you? What have you done? The whole Bible is about Jesus. Jesus does the work of explaining the Scriptures. He does this elsewhere in the Scriptures as well. In fact, just a little bit later in our same chapter, in verses 44 through 48, Jesus again grabs a bite to eat with others of His disciples. He asks for a piece of fish. He explains everything that's written about Himself in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms. He says this in verses in the middle of those verses there in 44 through 48, he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, repentance of their sins was not the great story that these people were looking for. They were looking for victory over Romans, maybe? 
Rescue from oppression, maybe, but repentance of sins? It seems that Jesus thinks that that requires that the Messiah must suffer. In the work of Jesus, we see a crucified man miraculously raised from the dead. It's an amazing story. If we watch the story of Jesus, that's what we see, but we don't know what it means. That's why just to tell the events of Jesus' life isn't enough. It's in the Word that we see a Savior redeeming sinners. You see, we don't just need to know the details of the activities of Jesus. We need to know the whole story of the Word so we can understand the Gospel of Jesus. I've heard it said, I've heard it repeated almost as a way of saying we don't really need to read the whole Bible, we just need to know about Jesus. I've heard it said all we need is Jesus. But Jesus seems to disagree. If Jesus agreed with that sentence, all we need is Jesus, Jesus would have given these people Jesus. He wouldn't have hidden himself from them, wouldn't he? What does he give them? He hides himself from them so that they don't recognize him because if all we needed was Jesus, he wouldn't have hidden himself. What does he give them? What does he give to the people? He does not give them a sight to behold. You hear that? You want to see Jesus? It's not the first thing that Jesus gives to comfort those who are mourning. He gives them a word to believe. He knew that if they saw His face that day, they would never know Him. But they knew that if they saw Him with faith in the Word, they would know Him truly. This is the third takeaway. Jesus seems to believe that the Word of God that is the Bible is the only sufficient means by which we can know, understand, and believe in Jesus. Do you believe that? You walk like that's true. Some of you have said, like myself, I remember a number of times, particularly as a kid, saying, if I could only see Jesus, if He would only appear, if only He would do something miraculous that would prove that He is real, if only. But Jesus seems to think that the only way we will ever truly see and believe Him is if the Word is opened to us, and we believe it. Jesus has answered all of my childish prayers of if if only, Jesus, you would show me you. And he's given me, I don't know how many Bibles I have in my house. I've received the miraculous answer. I only wonder, which of the Scriptures did he share on that day? Did he talk about King David, that where David had expanded the borders of Israel as a great warrior king, he himself was in need of a Savior, a Savior that would come in his line? Did he talk about Isaiah, and about how Isaiah talked about the suffering servant? Did he talk about Isaac, whose life was spared when his father Abraham discovered a ram in the thicket to offer as a sacrifice in the place of his son Isaac? Yeah. The son of David, that's who he is. The Messiah of Israel is coming. But he's coming like a suffering servant and he's going to die in the place of the redeemed. The Christ has suffered, he says. Yeah, it's true. It's something that you can really only understand in the Word. 
It's precisely because Jesus has suffered that He's purchased glory, not only for Himself, but for sinners whom He came to save. This is the Gospel. This is a Gospel that is the Gospel Word being explained by the Word made flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4. through 4. Probably the most succinct explanation of the Gospel in the Scriptures. And look what it says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received... And he does not then go on to describe the hair color of Jesus. Instead, he, des- he describes to us the very thing that Jesus had explained to his disciples. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. I love the fact that it doesn't even say in accordance with what this dude who was dead and then was alive came back and said. We've made a really big deal of that in our culture. We're making movies about people who were dead and then were alive and we're talking all about what they have to say. Jesus was dead and he was alive. And what did he talk about? What he saw there? He opens up the word and he starts in the beginning. And he says, let me tell you about who the Christ is. This is the means by which you might be saved. He made much of the Word by which we might come to believe in accordance with the Scriptures. He died for our sins, and He's risen, granted new life. Verse 29, it's great. It's interesting, Peter said something very similar to this when amazing things started happening around him. They drew near to the village with which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. Verse 29, they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Why did these two disciples basically force Jesus to eat with them? They urged him strongly. It has even stronger language than that. It's really saying they pretty much grabbed him and drug him into the house. Why? Because they'd encountered the Word of the Scriptures. The Word made flesh who has dwelt among us, that is Jesus, who is God the Son, took on flesh and became a man. That man becomes the desire of our hearts when we receive Him according to the Scriptures. I'm reminded of when Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does Jesus give? To his disciples. He gives them the word and he says, eat. We begin to hear the truth. We develop an appetite for it. We begin to invite the word to dwell with us. We begin to demand that the word would come home to us. We begin to read the word and we say, I didn't get that, but I believe it's true and I believe it's valuable. God, open up your word to me. We begin to pray more fervently because we, I believe, help my unbelief. We ask questions. Colossians 3.16 Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's like we grab Jesus in His Word and you say, you're coming to eat with me. So we've got some things to talk about. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What is the business of the disciple? The business of the disciple, according to the words of Jesus in numerous places, especially the Gospel of John, is to dwell with the Word of God and to make that Word known to one another. In verse 30, when he was at table with them, he begins to break bread and bless it and broke it and he gives it to them. We aren't sure what happened in that moment. Some suggest that when Jesus broke the bread and handed it to him, that they saw the scars in his hands. Others suggest that they remembered that day, just a few days ago, when they had broken bread with him in the upper room at the Last Supper. Either way, they came to believe that what the Scriptures said about Jesus were true. And it's when they came to believe that what the Scriptures said about Jesus were true, that they actually saw Jesus for who He is. Yes, He died. Yeah, of course He died. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer for sins, they could say. Yes, He's alive because the sacrifice worked to secure glory for Himself and for the church. And now they know the Gospel, the actual Gospel of the real Christ. And you know what they did? They went about preaching it. Look at verse 32 with me. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road? What was He talking there? He was talking the words of the Word. While He opened to us the Scriptures, it says. They didn't say, I can't believe we saw the resurrected Jesus and He had vanished. Cool. They were amazed by the truth of the Scriptures. They were on fire with His words. Words that can be repeated. I can only bring news that I saw something. Something weird. Some disappearing dude in my house. But I can bear witness to the words that are written. I can show them to you. And we can walk together and see our hearts become a fire. In verse 34 it says, He is risen Indeed, they bear this witness about Jesus. They're running back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples that Jesus is alive. But there's so, there's, there's so much more to the story that is taking place. Because now, they know He's alive and they know the story of the Scriptures. They too can open the Scriptures and share the true Christ. That when we discover Christ according to the Scriptures that the Lord must suffer, only then can we confront the real risen Jesus. It's when we understand why He died that we can rejoice that He's risen. Otherwise, the crucifixion is just an inconvenience. It's like a dead Jesus for a couple days, but don't worry, He got over it. But when we come to understand His suffering, when we come, on, uh, come to understand that it was necessary if there would be forgiveness of sins, that we can, we can make it our symbol. A uh, symbol of the cross is not just a convenience, inconvenience. It's not just a blip. It's not just this miracle thing to show us that Jesus was awesome. He'd already done awesome things. It was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. All of our breaking of bread, it's all a reminder that we have provision in the words of the risen Christ. And what do souls on fire do? 
Souls on fire who have broken bread with Jesus and encountered Him in the Word, they run to tell others that they've see, what they've seen in the Word. So, final question. What's the Lord up to now? After Jesus rose from the dead, we find Him on a road, not in some flashy light show. In fact, He is quite unflashy. He's, he's concealed. He's hidden. The day's going to come when it's going to be flashy. One of these days, He's going to come in the clouds. He's going to appear and all are going to see it. But until that day, Jesus is coming in quite another way. Another way that must be received with faith. We find Jesus not making much of Himself. Not in the way that we would expect. He humbly opens the Word along a road and around a meal table. How much more ought we as disciples carefully, diligently, faithfully, humbly, repeatedly, and with a fire in our gut open the Word and put Jesus on display until He returns? It's why like the, the slideshows, like, it's not moving. You can barely read it up here. It's kind of washed out. It's why we put bumper videos up every once in a while, and the, and the show that's going on over here is just enough to give us an opportunity to speak about His Word. Because what's amazing and what's caused a fire in our gut is that we know the Word about Jesus. And we are on a mission to put that Word on display. What's the Lord up to now? Well, it seems like He's going table to table opening up the Word of God. I'm watching it happening around your tables and around mine. This is now the business of the disciples. We find ourselves on the road, in the kitchen, at a friend's house, in the break room, and we're still sharing the same story. It's a long book. It takes a while. You can't do it in just one break room visit. It's going to take a while to share this story. It took Jesus a journey of many miles to share with these two disciples. There are two things that are needed as we close. We need to seek an opportunity to fellowship with the lost in our community. We need to figure out what road are they walking on and how can we sidle up next to them there, not with a great deal of fanfare, just with the truth of the word, asking a couple questions first. Those who suffer for one of knowledge and belief in the words of the scriptures of Jesus, where are they walking? Let's walk there. We need to seek, secondly, a knowledge of the Word and pray for faith in the Word that we ourselves would know the suffering of our Messiah who's died in our place and know that He reigns in glory and that we might eagerly await His return. Friends, what we need is we need a fire in our gut. And the only way it's going to get there is in His Word. Heavenly Father, I pray that the Word would be preached early in the morning just by opening it up. The Word would be preached as husbands and wives and brothers and sisters and roommates and friends would interact with one another. And they would share what God has placed as a fire within them and they would ask questions and we would discover the false hopes that are at work in our community and begin to share the true hope with humility. Lord, we love You. Your, your way is... Not what we would do or even what we do quite often. Your word and your way are astounding. 
and it's better, we confess. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would work. Your word would work and bear fruit in our hearts, in our congregation, in our households, and in our communities. Lord, we trust you that you would do this. We trust you in the name of Jesus, that your spirit would come and tutor us and grant us faith to know. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.